Welcome to episode nine of The War Pod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Programme is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank. I'm Abigail Watson, Research Manager at the Remote Warfare Programme. In this episode, we'll be joined by Zoe Gorman from RUSI, Anna Schmorder from Klingendale Institute, and Brema Dico from the Université de Lettres et Sciences Humanité de Bamako in the second of our discussions on the Sahel. This one will look at the local and regional context. In August 2018, the then British Prime Minister, Theresa May, outlined a new British approach to Africa. A key part of this has been the UK's so-called pivot to the Sahel. This is a commitment to increase the number of British personnel and resources going to the Sahel. However, there are no quick fixes to the problems facing the region. As we discussed in episode eight of the war pod, the international engagement in the region is confused and confusing and often risks doing more harm than good. The UK is likely to add rather than alleviate many of these problems unless they address the underlying causes of the conflict. To help us to begin to understand the local and regional dynamics of the conflict, we are joined by three experts on the Sahel. Thank you for joining us, Bremer, Zoe and Anna. So a fairly big question to start, Bremer, but could you briefly outline the situation in Mali? Okay, uh, hi everybody. Uh, my name is Bremer. Uh, my English is very bad. I, I understand better, but I cannot speak very well. Um, the situation in Mali is very complex now. Um, we have uh, more than um, uh, I don't know. we have uh, a lot of uh, refugees, uh, person in uh, Mauritania and Niger, and uh, we have a thousand of internally uh, displaced people, displaced people. And um, there are many terrorist groups in Mali, uh, Amadou Koufa in the central Mali, uh, Yadagali in the northern of Mali, uh, Belmokhtar, and all uh, and, uh, other groups. And uh, there are many terrorist uh, groups and uh, attack against the military are daily. Great, thank you very much. And Anna, beyond Mali, what are the key local and regional challenges facing peace and stability in the region? Yeah, thank you so much to, for the question. So speaking about the regional challenges, we are faced with a very bleak outlook. Despite the efforts of both the UN peacekeeping mission in Mali, MINUSMA, and the regional counter-terror efforts with French Operation Bakain and the G5, we have seen a steep increase in violence in the last year, in 2019. And if we just focus on the three central Saharan states, Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso, casualties from terror attacks have increased fivefold in recent years, with more than 4,000 deaths reported in the last year alone. And so overall, we have witnessed a proliferation of non-state armed groups in the last years, including on the one hand, community self-defense militias, but we've also seen an increased area of operation of Salafi jihadi groups 
specifically in the Mali-Niger border area and deep into Burkina Faso. Um, and they have become capable of organizing strategic attacks both against state infrastructure and state security forces, leading to more than 90 killed Nigerian security forces just earlier this year. And by targeting also key local governance actors, such as customary authorities, in an attempt to increase their control in these areas. So overall, what has become clear is that the military fight against jihad groups has provided limited success at best, and what we are actually witnessing is an extended area of operation of jihad groups that has moved in the last seven to eight years from northern Mali in 2012 and 13 to central Mali, and then towards the neighboring countries into the border region of Niger and into Burkina Faso. And a last point, we have also seen challenge in the military responses to jihadi groups themselves, where too often the protection of civilian population is not a priority. So in central Mali, we have seen military operations in 2019 resulting in tens of thousands having to flee these operations. And similarly, in Burkina Faso, we have seen very worrying trends where Human Rights Watch has in fact described the response by Burkina-based security forces as atrocities. And uh, where just now this week the government has also passed a law for the establishment of volunteer militias as the first line of defense against Salafi jihadi groups, further contributing to the spiral of violence and also increasing the risk of atrocities given that those local government digitalized militias have received near to none training. So I would say overall, in the absence of any worth mentioning state governance provision, we can see all over the region that non-state armed groups, including Salafi jihadi groups, have successfully exploited the absence of governments, instrumentalizing localized conflict lines for their mobilization, and in the process also increasing their capacities to conduct strategic attacks against state infrastructure, security forces and local administrations and civilians. And you, you mentioned already there the, the role of non-state groups in, in attempting to address these threats. I'm curious how able have local providers of justice and security, both in terms of these self-defense militia, but also in terms of local courts, been able to fill the gap that's been left in national and regional, both state infrastructure and military infrastructure? Yeah, um, well, it would indeed be wrong to speak of a complete absence of governance in these regions. In fact, a study that we have conducted last year on the hybrid governance in the Mali-Niger border area illustrates how local governance authorities in the form of customary leaders, have performed key governance tasks in the region for centuries already and have, through that, earned a high degree of legitimacy. And what it means for the situation now is that in very practical terms, customary authorities engage in crucial service delivery, such as justice provision and conflict mediation. However, in the border regions of Mali and Niger, customary authorities have now lived for years under the conditions of insecurity and faced with the presence of non-state armed groups, including Salafi groups. Um, and our finding illustrates that these armed groups have shown an astute awareness of the need to strategically engage with customary authorities, either by actively seeking to undermine and eliminate them through, for example, targeted abductions and assassinations, or through co-optation. And in Mali, 
when we look at the non-state armed actors that are now commonly called the signatories in the regions of Manica and Kidal in the northern part of the country, we have found that traditional authorities have allied themselves to those armed groups, either to protect their status quo position or as a necessary step to ensure their own security and their ability to govern. So overall, we have found many instances in which the alliances of customary authorities with armed groups allow them to continue to govern amidst insecurity. However, in the longer term, our report also shows that armed groups increasingly determine the available scope for traditional governance. So in we have seen that in the communities we have conducted research, community members now increasingly sideline customary actors and actually take the request directly to the non-state armed groups who they consider as more effective. And then in contrast, if we look to Niger, to the to the Berry region bordering Mali, we have seen traditional authorities, customary authorities, increasingly becoming targets of assassinations and abductions. And I think what these findings illustrate is the extent to which effective governance provision by customary authorities on the local level, including conflict resolution and justice provision, is highly dependent on support by central state authorities. So where the state is not able to provide this, their ability to resolve local conflicts for example, around land, land governance and natural resources become severely restrained and they themselves become targets along the way. And then there's another important limitation because what we have found is traditional authorities have historically provided justice predominantly on civil cases, but now in the conflict and faced with the absence of state administration and state justice provision, they have also tried to take on the adjudication of criminal justice cases. But in these instances, it's very clear that they first lack the means and also the authorities to do so. Zoe, I know that you've been working on this. Do you want to jump in and say anything? That I mean, it seems that there's, in some cases, it looks like there could almost be a substitute for the state the state system, but is that the case? Could that be said to be true? Exactly. So I'd like to go a bit back to the underlying causes and some of the issues that we're seeing in the region and then talk a little bit about some of these local structures and how are they are trying to replace some of the functions of very weak states. Um, so in Mali, we, we're seeing these three emerging challenges that the international community is very focused on. So that's jihadism, illicit migration and trafficking and um, other armed violence that is attacking various um, peacekeeping forces and operations there. And we said also the trafficking of drugs. So these are the sort of the main areas that the international community is focused on, but there are a lot of underlying issues that both predated the conflict and have been exacerbated by it, including drought, grievances in the north among the Tuareg ethnic group there, farmer herder conflicts, which are particularly prominent in the center, very high unemployment rates of around 65% youth unemployment, general poverty, a very high illiter illiteracy rates, particularly among women, and generally weak state structures that are viewed as corrupt or favoring one group over another. And because there are so many different, it's such a complex society with many different um, groups and uh, allegiances, 
it's uh, been a situation where the jihadist groups and various armed insurgencies have formed different alliances but are, are quick to break these as well because jihadism is such a focus of the international community that it's possible to protect, perhaps ally yourself with a group that might be seen as jihadist for an economic advantage but then when the international community comes in targeting these people to shift and, and break with these groups. So we're seeing sort of this communalic nature of the jihadism and armed violence in the region where there's a lot of shifting alliances and it's very difficult to track and map these actors. And then amidst that, there's a proliferation of a lot of local structures because the state is absent from large expenses of the territory, particularly in the north. So as Anna was saying, there are local justice providers and also local self-defense militias that are trying to bridge the gap of the state not providing essential services to the population, such as education, healthcare, and basic kind of security and defense. Um, so in some ways, it's very important if for international interventions to have the consideration and to understand these local structures that might already exist in communities where they're trying to build things, but also to be wary of them, because self-defense militias can be allied with a certain ethnic group or a certain interest, and they might not represent the entire population. And also traditional justice authorities can also be seen as not as legitimate, especially in criminal cases, which Anna was explaining, because they might not ensure fair treatment of everybody and particularly women can be marginalized. But these traditional authorities can also be very valuable allies when they do speak accurately and represent in a representative manner for the entire community. So while they are not democratically elected and they can uh, advance community values, the research that we've seen, seen shows that they cannot completely replace the state in the long term. So state building is a very important part of this process. And something that I want to pick up on that I think was really interesting what you said was this misalignment of the international community with um, national, local and even regional interests. And it would be good to turn to you now, Bremer, to ask what what are the key priorities for people, especially in, in Mali? Hello, thank you very much. Uh, in Mali, uh, we have a lot of challenges. Um, it is necessary now to supervise, uh, supervise um, the self-defense militias. Uh, to work for the return of state in the central and northern regions, um, to restore confidence between uh, military and the population, uh, fighting uh, cocaine trafficking and um, arms trafficking. Uh, another challenge concerning the G5 Sahel. Uh, the G5 Sahel needs uh, logistical means and the better collaboration with the Barkan and the Minisma. A dialogue with the leaders of terrorist groups is needed. Great, thank you very much, Brenna. That's super interesting. And I, I guess it, it would be interesting to tie that into what, how we should see the internationals approach based on some of the regional, local and national objectives and how that ties in with what the international community is doing. Yes, yeah, so as I explained or pointed out a bit earlier, the international community is really focused on fighting human trafficking and, and uh, illicit drug trafficking and arms trafficking. 
and especially on terrorism, um, in, in, especially in recent months with new initiatives focused specifically on task forces countering terrorist groups. And um, these priorities don't necessarily correspond with what the local communities have in mind for what's important to them. So when I was at Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, we did survey perception surveys of populations and we looked at what they actually felt by community level were their priorities. And we found that in both the north and the center regions, which are experiencing a lot of violence and quite a bit of um, international intervention, the top priority was actually unemployment for people. And then there were some security concerns, but poverty and unemployment featured for both these areas as two of the top three priorities. And it's very difficult for international actors to address some of these because there are long-standing grievances and it's really difficult to understand the situation and sort of embed yourself in it. So we're seeing a mis mismatch in priorities among local people and international actors. And that would be necessary to sort of reconcile this if you're to craft a strategy that promotes long-term stability and minimizes violence in the region, ultimately. Um, also, I'm a bit concerned, very concerned actually, with the increase in militarization in the region, because as we've discussed a bit with the, the UK pivot to the Sahel, there's sort of a tendency for everybody to jump in on this conflict, which is very concerning to the international community, and to try to provide a military solution. So, for example, right now, France and Sweden are work, working with Chad, which is seen as a military powerhouse in the region, to perhaps increase engagement in, in Mali, Niger area with additional soldiers. But there are a lot of underlying issues with this because Chad has a lot of judicial issues and it's important that these international pressures also you know, assert that fairness and dignity of all soldiers will be taken into account because there is a lot of unfair treatment and um, shady operations behind the scenes which don't necessarily make headline news but are undermining the effectiveness and both on a tactical level but also kind of on a political level, level of this operation. And we have 12,000 UN peacekeepers, now almost 5,000 Operation Barkhan, which is the French army presence there, and they're increasingly sending troops. We have the UK getting involved with more than 200 soldiers to MINUSMA, the UN peacekeeping force, and there's a real issue in coordinating all of these actors to have a, an effective response. Uh, which is shown, which we'll discuss a bit later, with the changes in the G5 Sahel, which would, was originally posited as a local solution to this, to these very international priorities. And on, we're seeing also on a political level that the conflict is providing a window of opportunity to renegotiate social contract and power relations among very diverse and often competing groups across the region, which sort of incentivizes the proliferation of armed groups because to get a seat at the negotiating table, having arms is seen as an advantage. Um, so in order to provide security and also get some political leverage, there are more and more armed groups being created and these different actors, both international and local, are serving to further delegitimize the state. So I think we're going to be engaged in this help for a very long time, unfortunately. And just to clarify, both Brenna and Zoe, you mentioned the, the G5 force. It would be good just to to clarify that that that's Chad, Mali, Burkina Faso, Mauritania, and Niger. Exactly. And it's a bringing together of those militaries. But I think we'll discuss that that later. Um, and Anna, it would be good to get a sense from you of around. I mean, we've heard about this disconnect now between the the local 
the national and the international aims and objectives. How do you think the international community needs to adapt to reflect or at least not contradict the, the different aims at the different levels? Yeah, so we have seen that the approach of Mali's international partners so far has had a twofold focus. On the one side, the peacekeeping approach through the UN mission MINUSMA to support the implementation of the peace agreement in Mali. And then on the other side, as Zoe has so rightfully mentioned, we have seen in increasing international focus um, on military means in the fight against jihadism led by French Operation Barkhane and conjoined with the G5, but also increasingly with the French support uh, rallying uh, for EU Operation Takuba. So given the limited success of the military approach so far, and also the gap, the distant gap between, you know, regional priorities and then the international response to it, I think two points are crucial moving for forward. One would be the to make the protection of civilians a priority, so both within MINUSMA and within existing counter-terror operations, as the lack of security provision is a key cause for the proliferation of non-state armed groups. Um, as one of our respondents in our survey has stated, he said, for me the question is, do I want to live tomorrow? So we have already seen the extension of mandate from MINUSMA last year to also include a component in central Mali to protect civilian population there. But given the increased use of IEDs, so improvised explosive devices in MOPTI in central Mali, MINUSMA relies primarily on air assets, that means helicopters, specifically to deploy to the region in a case of early warning action. Um, but like so many other UN missions, MINUSMA is chronically underfunded and hence requires more support by the international community in terms of air assets. So just to say that sometimes it can be also a very practical question of having the necessary equipment to actually deliver on the political mandate. And then second, we have already heard um, the increase on the increasing focus on military means. Um, we also know that this militarized approach has led to very limited success at best in recent years. In fact, since the beginning of the counter-terror operations, we have actually seen an increasing action of uh, Salafi jihadi groups. So I think it's a good moment um, to put greater international focus on a political strategy to these developments. Um, and so I think one point on what I mentioned already earlier is really to put a greater focus towards local governance authorities such as traditional authorities and customary leaders who could profit from increased training and resources in order to increase their already existing capacity to negotiate on the micro level in order to prevent the worsening of conflicts and to act before conflicts over land governance and natural resources can be exploited. And then secondly, I think what is crucial, especially now that we are seeing the increasing domestic criticism of existing missions, um, I think it would be an ideal moment to consider also that the Mayan government itself has actually posed the question of exploring communication avenues and channels with different Salafi jihadi actors in the regions. So, so far, this has been vetoed by Mali's international partners, predominantly France and the US, but 
a national conference has actually expressed its support for that approach to reach out to the various local Salafi actors, especially given the limited prospects to win with military means alone. And I think in this regard, it's important to recognize that when we talk about Salafi jihadi actors in the Sahel, we are not faced with a monolithic jihadi actor, but rather with a multitude of localized militias um, that are where and are in many ways motivated by socioeconomic and localized causes. So I think it could be worthwhile, as other researchers have already argued, and as the Malian government and national conference has actually expressed themselves to explore these avenues and see if there would be micro-level areas of negotiation, for example, around health or education um, with some of those local armed groups. And I think, um, just to add to that, I think it's helpful that the UK has framed its pivot to the Sahel around not just military means, but also political and economic. But then the fact that its first major announcement about the pivot to the Sahel is the sending of quite a combative force to Manusma, I think is quite concerning. I guess, Zoe, it would be interesting to hear from you. We've been teasing at it all episode, <laughs> but it would be good to hear from you about how you feel. You, you say that the G5 force has been presented as potentially a regional solution to the problems in the area, but how effective is it? How, what are the problems still facing the G5? So the G5 is a concept started in Mauritania in 2014, where the states of Mali, Mauritania, Burkina Faso, Niger and Chad come together and try to provide a structure for both joint security and then there are some developmental aspects to this as well, which is sort of on a separate arm called the Sahel Alliance, coordinated in part by France. So the G5 Sahel Joint Force was a big achievement among these states because they have historic rivalries, but it was a recognition that a lot of these problems are cross borders and that there needs to be a collaborative solution to this. And it's also been very important as an exit strategy for the French and for the international community in general. And a lot of international funding has gone into propping up this force, including getting some recognition from the United Nations, although not Chapter 7 funding because of various vetoes. Um, so the G5 force is using one battalion from each of the states and two from Mali and Niger. and trying to bring these states together to have a mix of military and police and gendarme to basically target the hotspots in the border regions. And these with the goals that are very much international, so um, trafficking and terrorism, essentially. But there have been a lot of issues, despite a very much a big push from the international community, which signals a very multilateral shift kind of in peace operations to potentially a lot of multilateral cooperation among states that you don't often see involved. So it's not just the French anymore, but um, the UK is getting involved in Netherlands, Denmark, Canada, the Gulf states as well, and, and some activity from Russia. So a need for a collaborative approach among different states, which could be interesting. But also there are different motivations with these international actors that can make it difficult to coordinate any strategy. And even among the regional actors, it's been difficult to coordinate effective responses. A lot of the campaigns have been initially kind of publicity stunts 
it's been very slow to operationalize. There are a lot of difficulties in coordinating with Munizma, which was supposed to provide a lot of technical assistance um, back and forth, and with Barkhan. As Anna said previously, there's the issue of IEDs, very slow response times, and also human rights violations along the Malian army as one of, in one of the G5 battalions against civilians, which undermines credibility with the local population. And some interesting note as well is that Algeria and Morocco, the regional powers, are not part of this, which in some ways gives the Sahel its own identity and autonomy, but also can cause issues with Algeria not giving the right of pursuit past its borders. And there have been a lot of, on the international side, a lot of delays in receiving pledged funds, difficulties coordinating pledges to both the Sahel Alliance, the development initiative, and the security to streamline them and make sure no overlap is occurring in trainings and various other initiatives and different priorities of international groups. So we've seen the transition of what was supposed to be kind of a local solution or regional solution to very international problems with international support transition now to the Sahel coalition, where France is essentially reverting back to the strategy of Operation Serval, the initial strategy in the north of Mali, to be very much more involved in this military process because it's not really working as it stands. And I think they're, they're starting to, if we read between the lines, the French are starting to wake up to the fact that the G5's hell maybe is not the answer they had hoped for for their exit strategy. And rather they're um, able to now be very much more, have a military solution, send even more troops and partner directly with the G5's hell states to do joint military operations. So it's very much more military and more international focus and with a lot of French involvement. And also it signals that coordination with MINUSMA because now the Sahel coalition will act outside of the border areas. So originally the G5 Sahel was targeting these border hotspots, but now it's targeting much larger territory. So that means that the coordination with the existing forces there hasn't been working effectively. And now there will be a lot of overlap in mandates and it's not clear how all of these different military actors will be working together. So very concerning. Thank you. And I guess it's within this very concerning space that the UK has now announced its pivot to the Sahel. I guess it would be great to get a sense from each of you of, given the discussion from the conversation so far, what what you would say to the UK government around how it, how it frames and how it acts on this pivot to the Sahel. What, from the lessons of your own research, should the UK do to make sure that it doesn't exacerbate problems? But helps with the alleviation of them? Uh, I think that uh, UK uh, can um, uh, encourage uh, the Mali um, to review the modality of recruitment into the army. Uh, currently, the recruitment of soldiers is not uh, transparent. Um, and uh, UK can um, encourage Mali to, to work imperatively with local population because terrorists are members of uh, communities. Uh, and uh, I think that it is imperative to provide the uh, G5 Sahel with uh, financial and logistical resources. Yeah, then maybe adding to that, um, I would also underline that it's crucial for the UK as well to, to not only focus on the, the fight against counter-terrorism or to focus on counter-terrorism and not so lately focus on the national level, but really recognize the, the relevance of local governance authorities, including traditional authorities, who in many areas of the country are 
the only authority available to many communities. Um, to equip them with the necessary resources and especially training about existing legal frameworks to enforce their capacity for community conflict resolution and justice provision. And then, especially with you to MINUSMA, I think the UK could also be able to, to contribute some of the necessary required air assets to enable MINUSMA to protect civilian population in central Mali. And lastly, it could also consider in what ways it could support the Malian government in their attempt to establish communication channels with some of the um, local jihadi groups. So I think on a tactical level, the UK can help to contribute to better coordination and also strategically better consideration of local priorities. and more effective sequencing and synergy among different strategies that go beyond the military solution. And then perhaps also in the area, another area which we didn't touch on as much as it perhaps deserves is increasing infrastructure. So we discussed the difficulties of response times for the military because roads are not very good, there are IEDs, it's difficult to access different places. So any kind of infrastructure projects in a secure environment that could help with these issues. Also increasing telecommunications has been shown to decrease violence in various different regions, so increasing the infrastructure there would be an asset. And throughout all of these processes, both military development and humanitarian, throughout all of this, these processes, it would be important for the international community to promote good practices among the G5 states with regard to human rights, anti-corruption, inclusivity, and also gender, and these could promote civility in the long term. Great, thank you so much. And I think one of the things that's probably especially true is that there was that we didn't manage to get to, to talk about that. We didn't go into detail about all the things that we should have gone into a million times more detail on. But luckily, in the show notes, we'll put um, the research from all the authors so you'll be able to read about this in so much more depth so i'll just leave it there so thank you very much everyone for being involved and thank you very much for listening i hope that you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did for those who want to read in more depth about the topics covered we put links to any research or publications we have mentioned or not mentioned but think will add to the reading on the topic in the, the episode notes if you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare Programme and the Oxford Research Group's work, please subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at orginfo and at remote underscore warfare. You can listen to all our previous episodes and free of charge by following the link at the top of the page. We look forward to joining you again soon. Thank you.